Thanks for that introduction, and thanks to everyone for uh, for coming along the, uh, the, this afternoon. I, I've been doing my bit for uh, Shetland tourism uh, over the last couple of days. Every time the many many tourists that I've met uh, uh, comment on the on the sunshine, I say, of course, it's always like this in Shetland. There's never any any summer where we don't have this sort of uh, these sort of uh, conditions. And also, uh, I've been proudly supporting uh, and uh, the Shetland flag in my my visit to Shetland, and uh, as I was mentioning at the reception last night, the, uh, I know a bit about the, the history of the, the Shetland flag, which is a fascinating history. It was designed by the, the late Roy Gronenberg, who was a, a founder, a member of the SNP in Shetland, and, and known to me, along with uh, a gentleman called Bill Adams. Uh, and Roy uh, he designed it as a, a Scottish shawl tire, but shaped as a, a Nordic cross. Uh, as he put it, to, to celebrate, this was in the 1970s, the 500th anniversary of Scotland becoming part of Shetland. Uh, and it is in, uh, in that spirit, the spirit of Roy and uh, his saltire shaped as a Nordic cross, uh, that the cabinet comes to, to, to Lerwick this afternoon. Uh, it's a, a great delight to be here, particularly at the Mareel Arts Centre. It's easy to see, having had a quick look round, why it's shortlisted for the Andrew Doolan Prize for the, the best new building uh, in Scotland. It's proof that you can have a creative base and hub uh, in this uh, far to the north in Scotland. It reflects the fact that culture and creative industries are one of Scotland's uh, and Shetland's great strengths. So today I welcome the fact that the second series of Shetland will be filmed here later in the year as part of a, a boom in television production that's now taking place uh, across Scotland. At the reception last night in the Town Hall, uh, we had stunning performances from three of Shetland's traditional music stars, Maggie Adamson, Brian Nicholson and Callum Watt. And it was a great, enormous pleasure to, to hear that trio playing last night. Yesterday I announced that the Scottish Government had approved uh, what I think is vital repair works in the runway at Sumbera, and today at the North Atlantic Fisheries College, Richard Lockhead announced six million of support uh, for Scotland's fishing industry. Uh, it does mean that it's a, a great idea to invite the Cabinet uh, to come uh, uh, to Shetland. This is the first of four uh, Cabinet meetings uh, taking place uh, around Scotland uh, uh, this summer. Uh, we're going to the Borders next, and, and then to Campbelltown, and finally to Fraserburgh in the northeast of Scotland. So we're going to north, south, west and east uh, in that order, but we're delighted to come here to Shetland first. Uh, yesterday I marked a, a further milestone the count day down to the Commonwealth Games. There's now just under one year to go, uh, and I was able to celebrate the fact that, that Shetland is the European Community for Sport for 2013, and of course to congratulate the, the Shetland team on its magnificent haul of 16 medals in the Island Games last week, which was a truly uh, amazing performance. Now, throughout this visit, the ministerial team, uh, and you can see there's quite a few of them, have <laughs> uh, uh, had a taste of something that's very apparent in every part of this Muriel Centre. That's the diversity, the vitality of life here in Shetland. It's a pleasure for me and the Cabinet to be here. Now, the principle behind us being here is a very simple one. It's part of a demonstration that we are not a cabinet or a government for Edinburgh, we are a cabinet and a government for all of Scotland. And that's exactly why the cabinet meetings go around Scotland in the summer. And it's not just a matter of having a meeting or even just a public meeting or a reception. There's been 27 separate visits of the cabinet members to local community activities, to 
uh, to interest groups, to uh, facilities, to the health service, to the education uh, establishments, uh, and that has been a, a learning process as well as a listening process and an action process for the, uh, uh, for the Cabinet Ministers. Uh, when I was uh, stuck in Aberdeen Airport uh, yesterday morning, early yesterday morning, uh, and uh, they told me, of course, that the, uh, the weather had closed in in Sumbera and uh, we couldn't get the flight out. But when I arrived in Shetland, it was bright sunshine. So I, I think this is something they just say uh, in Aberdeen to, to make excuses. But uh, I phoned round the various cabinet members who are respectively in Glasgow and Edinburgh Airport all waiting on planes. Uh, to come to Shetland, and I sent out the order of the day, uh, which that Scotland expects that uh, every cabinet member will do their duty and fulfil every single one of these 27 engagements, uh, however long it takes. But luckily, we were able all to, to get here, and every single one of these engagements will be fulfilled. Of course, there's another reason why I bring the whole cabinet. Uh, you see, when it gets to question time, uh, if, of course, uh, there's a difficult question, and I'm sure there'll be one or two, then obviously I have to allocate the questions round the Cabinet. If, of course, it's a much easier question, then I claim personal responsibility and I, I uh, answer, answer the question uh, directly. But that's the, uh, that's the advantage of having uh, the full array of Cabinet members. Now, in uh, the series of meetings we're having around Scotland, I'm uh, also making a series of speeches. Uh, and I do that because, although I'm going to address some specifically Shetland and Island issues towards the end of this speech, uh, and make a, a response to the very important document that was presented to the government by the, the Shetland Council, the Orkney Council and the uh, Western Islands uh, Council, uh, I also look to make the speeches that I make as part of the dialogue and political debate uh, around the various localities of Scotland, because that treats the the Cabinet, which has a full Cabinet meeting, not just on issues concerning Shetland, but a full Cabinet meeting for Scotland today. And therefore, the speeches I make uh, are about the issues facing the, the nation at the present moment, uh, and that's as it should be. So I've been making a series of speeches, uh, and this is one of them. And this one is going to touch on defence, because see, my contention is, as we approach next year's referendum, that Scotland is actually part of six unions at the present moment. And the requirement, the absolute necessity, is to be independent from one. That's so the political and economic union, which ties us to, to Westminster. Uh, for all of my adult life, I've been, uh, I'm 58 years old. For two-thirds of my life, Scotland has chosen governments which weren't then elected at Westminster. So for two-thirds of my life, we've had a government at Westminster which didn't reflect the choices of the Scottish people at the general election. And even those constituencies which did make a choice who ended up in government, I suspect this might apply to Shetland at the present moment. It would be somewhat surprised <laughs> uh, that their choice ended up as part of a, a Tory-led coalition at Westminster. But for the vast majority of people in Scotland, like me, for two-thirds of my life, we've ended up with a government that wasn't chosen by the Scottish people. That seems to me the necessity, that makes the political, the democratic case for Scottish independence. But we're members of other unions, the Social Union, the European Union, the Currency Union, the Union of the Crowns, the Defence Union through NATO. Now the first of these, the, the Social Union that exists across these islands, has never been and never will be determined by governments. It will flourish because of the ties of culture, history, language, family, friendship that we all share. The four other unions, that's the European Union, the Defence Union, the Currency Union, the Union of the Crowns, 
are ones which the SNP would pro propose to maintain. We'd want to change them, certainly, improve them, absolutely, but basically maintain these unions. Now, I should say at this point that it's open to other political parties uh, to put forward different choices for the people of Scotland. Of course it is. That's exactly as it should be. The whole essence of independence is about having the right to choose. So when I argue <clears throat> for, for example, uh, the continuation of the European Union, I'm putting forward the SNP's perspective. It's quite possible in an independent Scotland, other people will put forward a different idea and a different perspective. The point is, of course, that people in Scotland will have the right to choose. However, the SNP's view is that we can use the powers of independence to make these five unions work more effectively, both for Scotland and our neighbours. So, in our view, we should remain in the European Union, but we should have our own representatives in the Council of Ministers. And we should do it without the obsessive negativity of the UK's relationship with the rest of the continent. In our view, we should keep the pound sterling, but we should gain powers over taxation, borrowing, welfare, economic regulation and energy markets, which will allow us to build a fairer and more prosperous country, the essence of economic self-determination. And in our view, like 16 other independent nations throughout the Commonwealth, we should retain the monarchy. But the people of Scotland can still draft a new constitution, making it clear that sovereignty lies with the people and enunciating positive rights, as well as protecting essential freedoms. Australia, for example, is a country with the Queen as head of state, but a country which has a written constitution protecting the rights of its people. And in our view, we should remain in the defence union through NATO, and that's the union I want to say more about this afternoon. And in doing that, I want to set out three key advantages of independence. Independence, in my view, would enable us to make our own decisions about Trident and about overseas deployments. It would allow us to develop new capabilities, more relevant capabilities for Scotland, and we could create a new and more consensual approach to the defence strategy of the country. The first advantage is very clear. Although an independent Scotland will work closely with the rest of the UK on many, many issues, we will no longer be tied to UK policies which are overwhelmingly rejected by the people of Scotland. It is simply inconceivable that an independent Scotland would have taken part in an illegal and costly invasion of Iraq. Costly not just in terms of money, although it most certainly was costly in terms of money, but in terms of human life. An independent Scotland would no longer keep Europe's largest concentration of weapons of mass destruction within 30 miles of our largest city. It's astonishing, totally astonishing, that at a time when welfare cuts are reducing some of our most vulnerable members of society to penury, every single one of the United Kingdom's major parties is committed to a multi-billion pound nuclear weapon system that provides no credible response to any serious threat. The only difference between the London parties is how many billions are spent and how many missiles on how many boats. The UK government is so attached to Trident, of course, that two weeks ago the uh, Ministry of Defence was briefing that they could annex the nuclear base at Faslane as a Crown Territory uh, if Scotland were to vote for independence. Uh, this story, it should be la said, lasted for a full two hours <laughs> before Downing Street rushed out uh, a denial. It was actually as likely a scenario as the previous story last year that Scapa Flow and Orkney could be Trident's new home. It's actually part of a, a pattern 
of a campaign which actually itself describes itself as Project Fear. Project Fear is the self-description of the No campaign. That's what they call themselves, Project Fear. They argued, for example, uh, not that long ago, that the UK's AAA status was absolutely central and crucial to Scotland's economic prospects. If Scotland becomes independent, you'll lose the AAA rating, and that will be to major detriment. And then, of course, the UK itself lost its AAA rating. And then, a couple of weeks back, they, they claimed that mobile phone charges would go up in an independent Scotland. Actually, on the very day that the European Commission uh, announced they were abolishing them across the European continent, they said that United Kingdom embassies would no longer promote Scotch whisky. An interesting observation, that incidentally, that the idea that the international whisky industry is dependent on UK embassies having receptions. But it actually turns out that they charge, UK embassies charge for these receptions uh, at the present moment. And like all fears, these fears will disintegrate when confronted with reality. And the reality with defence, as in other areas, is pretty straightforward. Independence would allow Scotland to develop roles and capabilities appropriate to our position and to our size. There's nothing unusual about that. It's what countries around Europe do, including our Nordic neighbours. It's the second advantage of independence. It's one of the reasons I'm talking about it here in Shetland. The seas around Scotland and the north of Scotland are taking on huge importance. They've always been important. They're becoming globally significant. For regrettable reasons, of course, the melting of the Arctic uh, sea ice is a result of global warming. But that means that new shipping lanes are opening up between Asia and Europe. Rising sea temperatures are creating new trading routes, new fishing, new hydrocarbon opportunities. Yet despite the increased economic and strategic importance, the obvious strategic importance of these seas, the United Kingdom has scrapped its airborne maritime patrol capability. There's no such capability anymore. It ended the procurement of the new Nimrod aircraft and closed RAF can loss. Scrapping the, the procurement, incidentally, just cancelling that project cost taxpayers £200 million. It cost £200 million to cancel that project. Even the House of Commons Defence Select Committee uh, raised serious concerns about the capability gap caused by that decision. The UK has taken a decision not to participate in NATO's policing of Icelandic airspace. An operation, incidentally, brings together not just members of the NATO alliance, but also non-NATO members such as Sweden and Finland. And the Navy, the Royal Navy, does not have a single major surface vessel based in Scotland. Actually, the largest surface protection vessels in Scottish waters are the fisheries protection fleet of the Scottish Government. That's a fact, ladies and gentlemen. And in, you know, somebody who represented a fishing constituency for 25 years, a fishing constituency not unlike this one in many ways, you know just how popular the fisheries protection vessels are uh, in the fishing communities around the coastline of Scotland. But they are the largest protection vessels stationed in Scottish waters. And the Royal Navy does not have a single major surface vessel stationed in Scotland. And you think of the absurdity. We're part of a nation with a coastline longer than India's. Scotland has a longer coastline than India. 
and we have no major surface vessels stationed in Scotland. And it's absolutely obscene, of course, for a nation of five million people to host weapons of mass destruction. It seems that what we have, we don't need, and what we need, we don't have. Our current naval capability is based on prestige, not on performance. Now, the story becomes even clearer and even more difficult for Scotland when we look at maritime safety together with maritime security. From 2015, on top of the loss of Nimrod, maritime search and rescue capability will transfer from the military to private hands. One of Scotland's two emergency tugs has been withdrawn, as is well known in these islands, despite the strongest opposition from each of our island authorities. And although we welcome, of course, BP's work for Oil and Gas UK to secure additional cover, the future remaining full-time tug is in doubt after 2015. And since the year 2000, Scotland has lost over half of its Coast Guard rescue coordination centres. We have gone from seven centres to three. So my argument would be independence would allow Scotland to devise appropriate capabilities based on modern needs, based on our needs and those of our neighbours and allies. An independent Scotland would prioritise having the air and naval capability that we need for security of our oil and gas resources, fisheries protection, the safeguarding of our coastal waters. As well as being a member of NATO, we would cooperate with uh, NORDEFCO, the Nordic Council's defence branch. We could also develop specialist expertise in areas that will be needed by us and will be of value to our allies, such as in search and rescue missions. Now, our capabilities would primarily contribute to our security and that of our closest neighbours. Over, over time, it would enable us to contribute to international operations such as peacebuilding and humanitarian missions. So just as Scotland would develop our own capabilities, so we'd develop our own approach to defence policy, and that's the third and final advantage that independence has for defence. Now, the, the government, this government, the Scottish government, has already stated its view that a written constitution should include safeguards about committing our armed forces. It should require that military action is in accordance with the United Nations Charter and set out a clear role for Parliament in decisions on overseas deployment of Scottish forces. Our view is an independent Scotland, the government should work with Parliament to reach a consensus on Scotland's defence strategy. And that approach would build, for example, on the fine, outstanding example of the Danish Defence Commission. Now, to understand why that consensual approach matters, you only have to look at the history of the United Kingdom's new aircraft carriers. One U-turn, just one U-turn by the current government on the type of aircraft to be deployed cost taxpayers £74 million. The total cost overrun in the carriers, as a result, is now approaching £2,000 million. And despite the costs, it will be 2022 at the earliest before even one of the two carriers is fully operational. What happens to the other one? It's not going to be used at all. Having been commissioned in 2007, the decision was taken in 2010 for it to be held in extended readiness. In other words, mothballed. So a carrier will be built at vast expense, well built incidentally, very well built, with much of the work being done in the Clyde and Recife, only to be mothballed immediately. There could be few better symbols of the inconsistency and the cost of the inconsistency of current UK defence policy. And therefore it follows, if you root decisions in consensus, and this point goes well beyond defence issues incidentally, but it, it really matters in defence, and that's not a soft option. 
It's about being responsible as a country. It's about taking tough decisions for the long term. It's about making sure that change and cost rises don't arise with every shift in the political weather. Because if you allow to happen what has happened due to the inconsistency in UK policy, then the public purse, it costs the public purse extraordinary amounts. Ladies and gentlemen, it's 10 years since I spoke against the Iraq war in a, a debate at the Cuckamon Centre here in Lerwick. And I know that several hundred people had previously marched through the streets here to oppose the Iraq war, as did tens of thousands of people across Scotland and millions of people across these islands. Mind you, as far as I know, only Lerwick adopted the slogan, no one were name. Now, these protests, which many of us will remember, had no effect. The United Kingdom was no constitutional safeguards on using its troops, and although most Scottish MPs who voted on the 18th of March 20, 2003 supported a crucial amendment saying the case for war had not been established, they were outnumbered. Since then, Scottish MPs have been outvoted on the Trident renewal, while Scotland has borne a disproportionate share of the defence cuts, and as I've mentioned, the airborne maritime patrol has been totally abandoned. And remember, defence is just one example of how Scotland could do better if we determined our own priorities. This government will put forward proposals for an independent Scotland could use its powers to make the five remaining unions work effectively. Not just the Defence Union, but also the Currency Union, the Union of the Crowns, the European Union and the Social Union. Others will make other recommendations. As I said at the start of the speech, the great advantage of independence, eh, all of us, in that debate over the next year, all of us were in favour of independence, opposed to it, undecided, have an opportunity to reflect on the sort of Scotland that we seek. Now, Shetland, Orkney and the Western Isles Council have already taken a lead, a strong lead in doing that. Our islands, our future is, in my estimation, an important initiative, and we discussed it in the Cabinet this morning. And I'm pleased, therefore, to confirm that the Scottish Government have agreed in principle, jointly with the leaders of the Free Island Authorities, to convene a ministerial working group to consider fully the issues that have been raised. I'm confident that that working group will produce recommendations which will meet the needs of the island communities and also contribute to Scotland's wider constitutional debate. After all, there is a, a hugely important principle behind all of this, and one which matters in, in all parts, every part of Scotland, but we're here, so let's call it the Lerwick Declaration. We believe that the people who live and work in Scotland are best placed to make the decisions on Scotland's future. That's the very essence of self-determination for the nation. And therefore it follows, it follows, as night follows day, that we support subsidiarity and local decision-making. And it follows, therefore, that any government committed to that policy needs to listen to the views expressed across all of Scotland, as we are doing here in Lerwick. And as we are doing in terms of greater community land ownership, the forthcoming Community Empowerment and New Bill. So therefore, I, I look forward enormously to what you've got to say today.